On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson, uh, we are going to play you an interview we did with Roger Woodward, who once upon a time was the first guy as a seven-year-old who went over Niagara Falls and lived. We're doing this because another guy did it this week. Uh, Some story, we don't really know the story behind it, but Roger Woodward, man, he has a story. Stick around for that. We're talking to Kelly and Andy Warren, who just got back from France after... If you're not handy, this is going to probably make you shiver a little bit and maybe have an anxiety attack. Rebuilding a 600-year-old dilapidated French barn that Germans had taken over in the Second World War and lived in. It's an unbelievable story. And we are going to take you up on the challenge. We are going to make grammar interesting. Try us. Stick around. Listen. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I want to get this in. Uh, yesterday we heard a troubling, shocking story. Frankly, you heard it on the news all day about someone going over Niagara Falls and surviving. And the details are sketchy. We don't really know everything that's been going on. But it's a remarkable story nonetheless. Because if you've ever been there, and I'm assuming pretty much everyone listening has been there, you realize how unlikely it would be to go over those falls with all the rocks at the bottom and stuff and survive and come out the other end still alive. Well, back in 1959, a seven-year-old boy was the first one to do this. His name was Roger Woodward, became quite famous or infamous or both in Niagara Falls over the years. Some time ago, I caught up with Roger and we chatted about that day and that incident. Uh, This is that conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. This is, um, I was trying to think of one of the most remarkable things a person could survive in their life. And I got to tell you, I'm having a hard time thinking of something bigger than this one. <laughs> well, uh, people have actually survived much worse. But uh, anyway, I'm just thankful to the dear Lord that my sister and I both lived that day because uh, her rescue and, and my rescue both were, were truly miraculous. So we're just thankful to be alive. You were seven years old that day. Um, yeah. tell, tell me, first of all, before we talk about going over, how did you get into that position? What happened that you were actually about to go over Niagara Falls? Well, my dad worked for the Robert Moses Power Plant as a carpenter, and uh, he was one of those people that you read about or you see from time to time that is on a documentary um, uh, that helped build the infrastructure of, of the northern continent. And so uh, uh, he was one of those guys. I mean, just really an incredible individual. Anyway, a friend of his, uh, Jim Honeycutt, asked us to go for a boat ride in honor of my sister's uh, 16th birthday, 17th birthday, excuse me. And so just it was a small boat, 12-foot aluminum fishing boat. And we set out on the upper Niagara River, amazingly within view of the mist of the falls, but still well above the Grand Island Bridge. Uh, in a very small 12-foot aluminum boat. Okay, and so you're out there, and but still, how do you get to the point where you're about to go over the falls? Well, as we were going down river, we went under the Grand Island Bridge, and I remember distinctly, even as a seven-year-old boy, uh, people looking at us like, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> and we're just putzing along, going down river, and... Um, being an inquisitive seven-year-old, I persuaded Jim into letting me drive the boat, which really had nothing to do with the accident. I mean, it was only a seven-half-horsepower motor, so we're not going very fast. But uh, we navigated over towards the American side, 
and I saw a bunch of seagulls on a shoal. And as we got closer to the shoal to see the seagulls, we hit something in the um, in the water beneath the water, sharing the pin on the engine. So we lost power, and immediately the engine was going at full throttle. It was very scary, and right at that second the boat just seemed to be moving faster and faster downriver. Now, of course, we have no propulsion. So Jim, and really I feel his last heroic act in life, commanded my sister to put on the last remaining life jacket in the boat. And I already had an adult's life jacket on, which was a condition to me being able to go. And Deanne was fumbling around trying to get her uh, life vest on as Jim manned the oars, and about this time, one wave comes over the bow, then a second wave, and the second wave swamped the boat and caused us to flip over. Okay, so now you're in the water. Do you, I mean, you're seven years old. Do you realize that Niagara Falls is up ahead? Has that, does that sort of reach your brain or does that pop into your head that that's coming up? I think, you know, that's the real difference between our story and the story of even Annie Taylor, you mentioned earlier as you were recapping what she did, it was a stunt. And we were just innocent kids out for a boat ride. It was a horrific accident. We had no idea where we were, which is pretty frightening. Uh, we're, but we're in the water now. And as far as I was concerned, I had no idea that I was headed towards Niagara Falls. Well, I mean, was the water... I would imagine with the speed it's going and everything, it was probably really cold. Do you remember yeah, that? cold, but, but, you know, at this point I'm panicked. And that was the last thing on my mind because I'm being, you know, truthfully, I know you're going to ask what was it like going over, but, but before that, the rapids itself were the most brutal part of the whole experience. Uh, going through the rapids, Man, one second you're being thrown in the air like a rag doll, and the next second you're being torn down underneath water, slammed against rocks. You can't breathe. You're choking. You're, you're literally drowning. And then you just pop up, and and you go through the whole experience all over again. And this went on, it seemed like, for eternity, and it was really brutal. How much did you weigh at that time? Any idea? I, I guess I was about 55 pounds, you know, again, seven-year-old. I've got a grandson that's eight. And I look at him, and, and I realize, my goodness, you know, uh, it just amazes me how uh, my sister and I survived, and especially me being such a small boy uh, in the rapids, and then, of course, ultimately going over. Do you know if anybody, when this was all happening, when the boat tipped and when you're now being drawn along, do you know if anybody else on shore or in another boat saw this? Was anyone aware of what was happening besides the three of you? You know, Scott, uh, interestingly, there was a gentleman by the name of John Hayes. He was uh, a New Jersey State Patrolman, as I recall, uh, and, a, and uh, he was there at Goat Island with his family. Now, interesting is that this was 1960, and for a black man in 1960 to be with his family at Niagara Falls, I mean, that was really different than it is today. But nevertheless, he was there. And so... This one man happened to see the boat go by, and when he saw the boat go by, he realized, well, if there's a boat, there must be people. And so he started to scan the horizon as he's told the story, and I've heard him tell it. And he's scanning out, and then he sees the life vest, and he sees my sister, and he sees me in the water. So he immediately starts to scream to my sister, come to me, girl, come to me. And Deanne will tell you that 
uh, all these years later, that it was the power of the sound of his voice that made her not want to give up. And so here she is swimming perpendicular to the current, trying to get to the side. In the meantime, you know, she's tired. She's being beaten by the same rapids that I'm being beaten by. But she manages to get over just just uh, above uh, where the brink is. And he gets down, John Hayes gets down over or under the guardrail, and he puts his hand down. And as she's going by, they miss. So imagine this man. He has to get up now and, and kind of figure, okay, I've got one more chance or she's going over. And he runs down and he lays down one more time, 20 feet, no exaggeration, from the brink. And as she goes by, she catches his thumb. And now he's afraid that because of the current and the force of the water and the cold that he's going to lose his grip or Deanne's going to lose her grip. So he starts to scream for help. And that's when another gentleman by the name of John Catracci comes out of the crowd out of the spellbound crowd, and he reaches down and grabs the back of her life vest. And between the two of them, they're able to get her uh, on shore. Now, as you can imagine, Deanne is now, you know, she's rescued, she's safe, but now she's worried about me. And she's telling them about her brother. And I saw an 8-millimeter film that uh, Mrs. Hayes took. It was without sound of my sister laying there at Terrapin Point on Goat Island. And John Catracci kneels down and whispers into her ear to say a little prayer for your brother. And you can literally see my sister put her hands together, clasped together like a child saying wow. their prayers at night. And it was at that point that I was going over the falls because they knew there was no way they could get to me. But I could see them. Are I you... didn't know who they were, but I could see people running up and down. And it was quite frustrating because nobody was coming to get me. But my sister certainly said a prayer for me. Are either John Hayes or Mr. Pertaccio, are they still alive? Do you still keep in touch with either of them? No, they've, they've both uh, since passed away, which is something that, you know, I'm 63 now. So July 9th, 1960, you know, 56 years ago, this happened. So a lot of people that were alive then when it did happen are starting to slowly, but surely, you know, that generation is passing away. Sure enough. As they have. In fact, the nurse, Eleanor Weaver, uh, her name, her married name was Cass. She cared for me in the hospital at, at uh, on the Canadian side, and uh, I understand that she has recently, not too long ago, passed away as well. So when you get to the brink, did you, you're looking, I don't know if you're looking back or what you're looking at, but did you realize what was about to happen? Did you know you were going over when you went over, or was it all of a sudden just, oh, I'm over? No, you know, Scott, what happened was I was telling you earlier about how brutal the run through the rapids was, and I had no sense of up or down or anything. Uh, It was like being inside of a washing machine, but it was a washing machine that's beating you up. But then as you've been to the falls and you've noticed right there towards the brink, the water flattens out, and it's just moving swiftly, but it's calm. And it was at that time that I could look out and see across the the brink of the falls across over into Canada and see the the granite wall on the other side of the gorge. I didn't know that's what it was, but I knew that I was about to go into this big void area. I didn't know it was Niagara Falls because I had no idea that's where I was. And so uh, at that point, though, it's interesting to me as an adult that even as a seven-year-old child, right at that moment, I realized I was going to die. And I thought about my family and how sad they were going to be. And 
my little dog, we had a Chinese pug named Fritz, and my toys and my friends, they were all going to be saddened that I was dead. But I, I really came to terms with the fact that I was going to die. And frankly, it was a very peaceful moment. And so when you do go over, uh, you know, the thing, as I said, when I started out, the thing that I think everybody has probably thought when they've stood there and looked is what would that be like? What was the sensation when you suddenly were now over, going over Niagara Falls? It was the most peaceful part of the whole experience because now um, I'm literally floating in a cloud. I can't see anything. I'm in the mist. I don't feel anything. I didn't have that sensation like riding at a roller coaster. I didn't hit the bottom with a hard splat, uh, you know, like a belly flop or anything like that. I'm just floating in the air, and I fell 162 feet. People have fallen much further and lived, uh, even not into water and lived. But for me to go over and not hit any of the rocks. Exactly actually in the falls or at the base of the falls. I mean, if I had just grazed a rock, uh, it would have, it would have shattered every bone in my body, but I fell into the, into the mist and it was just like floating in a cloud. I guess you would call it vertigo. I had no sensation at all of up or down or sideways. And then it, I had this hard throbbing sensation in my head from being hit by either the boat or the gas tank or rocks or something. I had a concussion. And uh, my, with each beat of my heart, I could feel that in my head. And uh, the next thing I know, everything went real dark, and it started to get light again. And as it got light, I could see the silhouette of what looked like a huge boat, and it was the Maid of the Mist too, Captain Clifford Keach, who's also now passed away. Uh, his his uh, touring boat was about to make the turn back, towards the Canadian side, and he happened, well, not he, but one of his deckhands happened to see me in the water, and that's when they started to maneuver to rescue me. I mean, you've you've touched on the fact that your sister being rescued was, you know, that, that, that John Hayes was there. I mean, that was miraculous. There's a lot of miracles, it sounds like, involved in this story, but pr- to me, whenever you hear about Niagara Falls, it's the rocks at the bottom of the falls, and it's just, it seems unbelievable that somehow you missed all of those. Of this of this whole story, the fact that you didn't land on the rocks is just remarkable. You know, I've, I've spent 56 years, uh, I, well, I went through several years as a young man trying to answer the question, you know, everybody would say to me as a young boy and even as a young adult, you know, my, God must have something really special in store for you. Well, that's a, that's a pretty heavy burden to put on somebody. And so here I am looking for the burning bush for a number of years. But at age 27, I came to know Christ as my Savior. And it was then that I realized that I was rescued that day because God knew that at age 27, I would be rescued again, but this time it would be for eternity. And so I give him the glory and all the praise for saving my life and my sister's life that day. Um, you can try to analyze it, and I know engineer friends of mine down in Huntsville, Alabama, where I used to live and just moved from, they used to theorize different ideas and concepts about, I rode the water like a giant slide or landed in a pool of foam or whatever. But for me, in my house and in my family, I thank God that he saved my life that day and my sister's as well. Did you become as a result of that? Because again, a seven-year-old child 
the natural reaction to this would be, I'm never going near water ever again. Did you become terrified of water as a result of that and avoid it at all costs? No, no, quite the contrary. I love the water. I became a certified diver, and family <laughs> as we were, we went back to Michigan. We we moved to Michigan uh, back in the mid '90s, and we got into Great Lakes boating, which was magnificent. And I'll never forget sitting at the dock uh, one weekend and and looking at the water because in the Great Lakes, as you know, there's a six knot current that's pretty regular. And I realized on Lake Huron, where we were, uh, docked that night, as I'm looking at the water, I'm thinking, all of this water is going down the Crystal River, down into Lake St. Clair, down into the Detroit River, into Lake Erie, into the Niagara River, and over Niagara Falls, and of course the power plants. But I thought, here I am. I'm above Niagara Falls again in a boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little further away, a little safer distance. A little safer distance, but it did give me a little pang in my, in my stomach. <laughs> the, you tell this story now, and, and, and I mean, it's such a fascinating, amazing story, but for a long, long time, you did not talk about this. I don't know what the number of years, 30 years or something, you didn't speak of this. Why not? Well, my, my, first of all, we left Niagara Falls shortly after the accident because it was, as you can imagine, back in 1960, I mean, it really was a big deal. Nobody at that point, from the beginning of time, and nobody since, for 47 years after our accident, had ever gone over Niagara Falls without a barrel and lived. So people tried to turn it into something that we really tried to stay away from. And As in I making you a hope. celebrity? I wouldn't, I, you know. No, but is that what people were trying to do? Were they were they basically treating you then as a celebrity for having done this? It was, um, it's hard for me to explain how we were being treated, but my mother had a lot of illness. We came from a very simple background. And so my mom and dad just decided we're leaving. And we went to Kasaki, New York for a short while, and then from there to Lakeland, Florida. And my family said, look, let's just not talk about it. Well, as a seven-year-old kid, when you tell me not to talk about it, you know, my thought was, what did I do wrong? Yeah. And my sister and I didn't talk about it, literally, and I'm not exaggerating, for 34 years. We never discussed it. And then, uh, like you found me in Colorado, uh, which amazed me today because we just moved here, um, well, I, was, I guess it was in junior high or high school, a reporter found us in Lakeland, Florida. And at this point, my parents started to ease up a little bit on discussing it and talking about it. And then from that point, I realized, you know, this really is a part of my personal history. And the story of our event there, our accident at Niagara, is part of Niagara's history. Mm. And so we didn't do anything wrong. A man lost his life. My sister and I, by the grace of God, were rescued and saved. And I don't mind sharing about it. And Nurse Eleanor Weaver, we were up in Toronto doing a documentary. And I, I saw Nurse Eleanor Weaver for the first time since the accident. And it had been 34 years, exactly. And I'll never forget, she said, part of the healing process is to talk about it. And so over the years... I've realized that it's healthy to discuss it, to talk about it. So when asked to speak uh, this past year, last year, in fact, in Niagara Falls, Canada, I was asked to participate in the prayer breakfast there uh, 
they don't call it the mayor's prayer breakfast, but from my perspective, that's what it was. And, and we were great. We were treated greatly. And there was a large crowd, and I really enjoyed the, the spirit of the event and, and how everything was handled. It was top-notch. And, and it, something like that was really exciting to go to and participate in and be a part of. So you have been back then? Oh, several times. Several do, do, times. When you walk into a Niagara Falls restaurant and say, well, you probably don't tell them who you are, I would hope you would eat for free there for the rest of your life, no matter what. <laughs> no, but I've got to share this one t- bit of trivia. Uh, there was a restaurant there on the Canadian side that my sister and I, when we were back uh, doing uh, a documentary, we, we went to this restaurant. And I pulled out my American Express card, and I put it down to take care of the bill. And the server looked at me and said, Mr. Woodward, you can't come to Niagara Falls and someone not recognize that name. And I thought, wow. <laughs> that was That was, like I said, a bit of trivia. Uh, that's some of the fun that we've had with it over the years, but... Listen, I'm just, Scott, I'm just a normal person like everybody else. I'm trying to live my life and take care of my family and, uh, and, and get through this uh, old world. But uh, uh, as a child, I was blessed by having lived through a, a really scary event. That is Roger Woodrow. That's an unbelievable story. Um, we will take a quick break. Back after this on The Scott Thompson Show. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, This year, and I found this out only the other day, and it's a great little tidbit, because this year is the 40th anniversary of the TV show This Old House. You've probably seen that one. It's with Bob Vila on PBS. And it's, if you don't know it, well, if you know it, you know it. If you don't know it, it was Bob Vila who, starting in 1979, started, well, simply put, rebuilding old homes and bringing them back to the way they were, or even better. And that date, that time is significant because really it was Bob Vila and this old house that launched the slew of home repair, home upgrade shows that are on TV now on every channel, but mostly on HGTV. I mean, Fixer Upper, Good Bones, Flipper Flop, Love It or Listed, Beachfront Bargain Hunt, Extreme Makeover Home. I mean, go on and on. I could go on for five minutes just listing all the shows that are on there. Uh, It is an endless list. Why? Well, we'll find out in just a minute if our next guests have any theories on why there is such a fascination with this. But anyway, that brings me to those guests. Andy and Kelly Warren run the Rock Paper Scissors Company here in Hamilton. Uh, They just are back, though, because they decided to run off to France for a couple months and do what any normal Hamiltonians do, and they decided to rebuild a 14th century Normandy barn. Which seems very commonplace. I mean, who doesn't do that? <laughs> thanks, thanks for coming in, guys. They're in studio. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. us. Uh, y- you do realize that that is kind of not what anyone else, probably in their right mind, would think to do. But they should. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all, before we get going, Rock Paper Scissors Company. Love the game. Why the name? And oh. what do you guys? And what is the company? We are uh, custom furniture and functional art, um, and we also do workshops mainly geared towards um, beginners and women and children. Um, w- intro to woodworking, basically. You're both carpenters? Uh, yep. Okay. And our studio, uh, we have a studio at the Cotton Factory in Hamilton. We've been there three years, um, and we really just like to build anything custom with our our touch of our creativity and our style and art. 
Cool. Now, before we get to France, I should ask you that question that I sort of raised in the intro there. Why, Andy, why do we seem to love these home renovation shows? Because we do. Everybody watches it. They're like those movies that, for me, it's Shawshank Redemption or something. If you're flipping channels and you come across it, you have to stop mm-hmm. and watch. That's the home rental shows now. We do. Why is it? Uh, off the top of my head, you know, I can only think that it's because you can do it. Because a lot of us have our own houses, our own property. And when you see somebody else being able to do it and with not a lot of experience, it gives you the confidence to at least give it a shot, right? And now with, you know, you have the all the information's out there, how to build, how to... <laughs> you know, repair. And so I think that it just gives you the confidence to, to be able to tackle some of this stuff yourself. Which is funny because I look at those shows and I think there is, well, you guys are handy. <laughs> uh, if I started to do a home reno project, I know what my mind would look worse at the end than it did at the beginning. However, well, I have to admit, <laughs> as I'm saying it, I'm realizing how many times I've tried to tackle somebody else's do it yourself and it drives me crazy. So Maybe you shouldn't be doing it yourself. Yes. Oh, absolutely <laughs> Just not. Just watch the show. Absolutely not. Yeah, exactly. We do love them. Though. And again, it's it's an it's an interesting. I don't know if it's a fad. I don't think it's going to be a fad. I think it's just one of those things we like the the results. We like to see mm. what you know. Anyway, uh, okay. So you're you're sitting at your studio at the Cotton Factory, and what? Someone sends you a picture of this 14th century French barn, and you say we've got to fix that. No, this started. Um, Almost 10 years ago when we met, um, it it's something that has always been really important to us, um, living abroad, you know, taking our passion kind of anywhere that will take us. Um, and then over time, we were able to um, build our company and, and grow our family. And um, there came a time last year where um, we kind of said enough is enough with the, you know, kind of life that we were living in um, and it's time to really follow those dreams that we had set out um, so you went looking so for something long ago we did um, this program is something that's always kind of been on a back burner for us it's called work away um, and then we just sort of really started narrowing down you know what we were looking for we're looking for a building project um, we're looking for a volunteer exchange we're looking for a host that can accept our family we have two little girls and we traveled together it's super important to us um, and it kind of narrowed down from thousands to hundreds to 10 to one Andy, family. Andy, is there a website where you go and look what these projects it's, are? Yeah, it's called workaway.com. Okay. And you become a member to an annual fee of something ridiculously low as $50. And then you get all the profiles of the workaways. And then you can contact them and go back and forth. And everybody gets a profile. So we'll have a profile now with a rating to see how well we did on our work away so that when we apply to another work away, they can see and they can, hmm. you know, they know that we are, are good work awayers. We so, got five stars. Oh, yeah. well, see, <laughs> out of five, I hope. Yes. yes. Okay. Because yeah, if it's out of 30, it's like, man, that's, <laughs> that's going to be tough. Um, so when you go on to the site then for Workaway, are you looking for the geography or are you looking for the project as the thing you're going to choose? Both. It's super important for, for both. Uh, in our case, we, I've been to France. I always wanted to go back. I love the history and the culture. Um, so it was important. You can do it anywhere in the world. So first and foremost, we, we chose the region. 
we wanted to incorporate building. We didn't want to just go away. Experience is very important to us. We didn't want to just go on a vacation. We wanted to, you know, meet people and, and experience the life, not just, you know, do the touristy things. Um, so geography was first and foremost. And because it was our first work away, we wanted to go somewhere, you know, where we sort of knew the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you speak our, French? I, a little bit. Okay. Uh, Petipa. Um, <laughs> But the it was a it was a mixed family, so it was uh, the wife Polly was British, so it was very easy, mm. right? So we were able to speak English. So for our first time, we wanted to make it as easy as possible, especially going with two little girls and not knowing exactly what we're getting into. Yeah. So you get there, Kelly, or when you're looking on the website and you choose this place, what state before you arrive? When you're just on the website, what state does this again? 14th century, so it's got a few years on it. What state does it look like on the website? It actually wasn't on there. Oh, um, nice it of was them. Part of so the to-do list at this particular host's home um, is endless. You can go for farming, or you can go. You know, they have four children. There are a number of things that they are looking for help. Free, free labor, it sounds like. <laughs> um, it's an exchange for food and, okay. and a Oh, so a they, guest lo- they house. put you up. Yeah. Okay. So part of what drew us to them or made our, our profiles come together were that they, they had some building projects. Um, it was more of a down the road, we hope to rebuild, you know, this 14th century barn that we have. And, and when we really narrowed down um, to their profile, I just got in contact with them and I basically just said, we are, you know, this is who we are. Um, this is what we can offer. This is what we have to offer. Um, and we have children with us. And it was almost just an immediate, like 100%. Hmm. We need you. Yes, your children can come. Absolutely. When will you be here? Um, and over the next eight or nine months, um, we continued that communication. And then we really didn't even know what we were getting ourselves into until we arrived. So you hadn't seen the barn at all? No. Okay. Okay. So I've got pictures in front of me from your blog, by the way, which is rpscohamilton.com. So rock, paper, scissors, company, hamilton.com. You can go on there. There is a blog. There are photos. Uh, when you do get there then and you lay eyes on this barn the first time, for how many days did you think, let's turn around and go home before we even start this? At least at least 24 hours with zero sleep, right? Because we show up with daunting. our kids. It was, it was. horrifying. We, we, <laughs> there's this barn where the foundation has completely fallen apart. The wall's hanging on by a thread. And that wasn't even the worst. We walk into the barn. They show us in the barn. And there must have been 12 jacks just holding this barn up. Now, for people, just, just sorry to interrupt for one second, but just so people understand, we have barns here that are basically just wooden structures from top to bottom that you could nail a piece of wood back in play. This is not, again, imagine, and I'm trying to describe this, but it's stone and what's the roof made of? I don't even know. Like Tile. Tile, slate, tile. slate tiles, and the sides look very old French, old, almost Germanic or French or whatever. I mean, it is a huge project. Yeah. And it's called torche, the, the type of um, construction that's used for the walls. But basically, if you're not looking at the photo, the best way to describe it is uh, horizontally from bottom to top of the barn on three different levels, the, the main beams were cracked. So the whole front side of the barn was ready to come down. So when you walk in there the first time, and was it the day you arrived, they took yep. you there and showed yep. you, mm-hmm. and you walk in, do you say this is beyond repair? It, I was I was scared. I, I thought this barn was going to collapse on our heads. 
and we went up to our room and I probably had a panic attack <laughs> and we just, you know, what are we doing here? What have we done? Maybe it's time to think about the farming option. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, we can can we just dog. feed the chickens? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it took a while and, and the confidence of uh, Vincent, who was our host, I mean, he set us at ease and he showed us what he had done and he had rebuilt his, his house by himself. He's an engineer and this unbelievable man. So when we got to sit down and talk to him and he showed us what he'd already done with very little experience, we started to, you know, set our, our minds were set at ease. And then we just took it one step at a time, but we were very slow. It was very... But you're carpenters. And yeah. so you have great skill when it comes to wood. What's your skill like when it comes to foundations and <laughs> blocks and stones and things like that? It's funny. Very even, Yeah. But even the, the work that we were doing there, um, like we've spoken about you know, can we translate any of this and bring it back home? We really can't. We really went to another place in the world and we learned how to build their specific structures that are built for their region, in their region, in a way that really wouldn't have any use being here. So the things that we learned there, um, we wrote a little about a bit about it. Um, you know, we kind of left them there. We... But it's hundreds of years old. Like, do they yeah. even have the same, does, does anyone there know how to do this now? Or yes. are you having to figure it out? A little bit of both. Um, the, the, the reason, so a lot of those barns are in complete disrepair and falling apart. because it's so expensive to have somebody else repair them mm -hmm. for you. And it's, there, are, there are very few people that will do it. So that's why Vincent, his family owns property throughout that area. It was very important for him to do it traditionally and to do it himself. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, it was, it was a daunting task and a lot of places can't do it because it's just so expensive. Uh, in the, in the region, if you are going to rebuild, it has to be like historically Traditional, rebuilt, yeah. Yeah. Um, back to the way that it was. If they're, if you're sort of in a um, newer area of a town, the towns are quite small, but they are building some subdivisions. Um, the subdivision, the new homes in those subdivisions will resemble this um, barn, hmm. the way that it is completed at the end, and the home that um, Vincent did build by himself with no other people. So him having us there was a huge help. Um, the home is exactly the same type of structure. But this would be, correct, completely not like anything you've ever built before? No. no completely. No, nothing. We and would... No, no, and, and I go back to what, where we started from here, which was, you know, the, you took at the home repair shows. All of those people are using the skills that they have to, you know, Chip and Joanna Gaines aren't making up new ways of building a house when no. they fix it up. They are doing what they know. You guys are stuck doing something completely out of your skill set. It was like going to a school in another country for like no good reason at all. <laughs> but it changed our life and it changed our family and our, our life story. It was and incredible. Just, I, I will take back some of the, I mean, they, in that building, there are no screws. You know, everything are, it's all wooden nails. It's all mortise and tenon. And what I will bring back from that is w when we build a table now, I'll use less screws. I'll try and use some wooden nails and use mortise and tenon joints for the bases and stuff. I think that it, it was beautiful. The joinery there was absolutely beautiful. And that is what I'll bring back for the construction side of our business. Was there a point you said when you arrived and you're first in there, you're worried that the whole thing is going to collapse on your head 
Multiple times throughout the six <laughs> weeks. I think we said that, yeah. I was going to say, how long did it take for you to believe that the thing was stable? Uh, <laughs> a few <laughs> days at least. Yeah. I mean, we would go in and do a little bit of work, and then you, but you, you know, you're doing as fast as possible so you can get out. And then he would come home and he would show us and he would, you know. Oh, so he had left you Oh, work. yeah, he just left us because oh, he had yeah. a full-time job in, <laughs> in Con. He was, he was 45 minutes away. So he would ask us to do something. And while we, he was gone and, and Polly was gone, we would go in. The kids would be off, you know, feeding the chickens. Not in the barn. Not in the barn. Never. They did not They've go in the barn. They've never been in that barn. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't um, near it. It, it took a while to realize, you know, that it was safe, that he had done it properly. He had learned from other people how to do it. It, but it definitely took probably about a week to really feel, really feel comfortable because he was li- it was lifting right off the ground. It was. But even in the last week, we decided that we had enough time to fix an upstairs wall. Last minute, we were like, "Yeah, let's do it." And then we're inside upstairs, and you know, it's that every once in a while where we're like, "Okay, one, two, three, and everyone's just gonna like do this and run away." So and then we'll regroup on the field and we'll see how it's going. So I'm looking at the pictures here. And again, I, I apologize. This is radio. I can't show people <laughs> pictures. But again, go to RPSCO, Rock, Paper, Scissors Company, Hamilton.com. You can see all the pictures here. You're used to wood. You, you, guys, you guys are carpenters. But you've got, what, stone, yeah. wood. Uh, what is there? There is yellowish tan stuff between the slats of the wood. What's that? That is mud and straw, basically, to, you know, that was pushed through. I mean, the, the best way to describe it is the um, plaster and lath here. So we put up the, the strips of wood, and then you would take handfuls of this mud and straw, push it through the slats, and then and then smooth it out. And that is, that's the insulation. That's going that's real old school. Wall. It was it's about six school. inches thick in the end um, between each post but yeah it was just this heavy thick muddy clay and and straw you've mentioned that you you're still on this website are you going to do something like this again yep yeah yeah um next we time you're going to repair a tent or something mm-hmm. <laughs> um we were we were fortunate enough to um have the support of our our clients um mm-hmm. and our family and our friends and we did a lot of um fundraising and we you know um we'll be doing more but uh selling you know, tickets to win a piece of our furniture or things like that. Um, and it's definitely something that's important to us and, and our our brand and going and being a part of somebody else's life and helping them to achieve something that they couldn't otherwise. Just a bit of history from this, just be, so people understand, A, it's 600 years old, but just a line from your blog, we even managed to rebuild it all, not touch the blackened beams that were burned during an evening stove fire 75 years ago when German soldiers lived inside its walls. Yeah, yeah, that, the, his property was occupied by German soldiers. His the town, which is a bit of a five ten minute drive, um, Saint Pierre Surdives, it was occupied by SS. The the history of that property and that area is is unbelievable. So and it was worth rebuilding for more than just the fact that it was an old barn. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's a great story. Uh, once again, I'm not going to give you the well. Look up rock paper scissors. And from Hamilton, y- you may find a, fu- a site that gives you instructions on how to play the game. Skip <laughs> that one. Go to the Carpentry site. Kelly and Andy Warren. Uh, guys, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. It's a great story. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Perhaps the greatest challenge ever done by anyone in radio history. That is, we are endeavoring over the next few minutes to make grammar Interesting. And I know for some of you it's fascinating, but for others of you who remember your high school years, you are saying, wait a second, 
I think I may go find something else to do. Hang with us for a second. We can make grammar interesting. I'm going to tell you why. I was reading a story in the BBC on the BBC website the other day, and it pointed something out that had never dawned on me before. And that is that we have patterns in our language that we follow religiously without even knowing that we do it. Grammar rules. All right. When you talk to someone, you may say you're having a chit chat in the movie. The big ape was King Kong. Rap music sometimes is called hip hop. But we would never in a million years say, oh, I'm going to sit down and have a chat chit with someone. Uh, the, The ape is never Kong King. You would never call that music hop hip. So why, but why does this sound wrong? Why does it even sound anxiety provoking to say those words? It's like hitting a bad note on a piano. There's something desperately wrong with it. Well, it's all about grammar and linguistics and rules that I don't even understand, but I know someone who does. Dr. Sonia Bird is an associate professor of linguistics with the University of Victoria who joins us now. Dr. Bird, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Thank you. Until I read this, it had never really dawned on me that we have these rules that we don't even know about that yet we are following all the time in our grammar. That, you know, that's often the way grammar works, actually. Speakers have really good intuitions about them without necessarily being able to kind of verbalize them or having any conscious awareness of them. I understand. Now, I had to look this up because I did not know this. My grammar, you know, marks in school were not always outstanding, which is unfortunate. <laughs> but uh, I apparently this is part of this anyway, is something called ablaut reduplication. I don't even know if I pronounced it right. Oh, yep, you did. Yeah, good job. <laughs> which means, what, okay, which means what? What does that mean that we're doing in grammar? Um, so that's that's just one kind of grammatical feature, and you just introduced it. So it's in words like TikTok, King Kong, Chit Chat. Reduplication means you take some chunk and you repeat it. And then ablaut means uh, it's, a, it's a process where the vowel changes. So something like TikTok, if you said tick, tick, would be reduplication, tick, tick, you just repeat. And then if you add ablaut to that, it means you change the vowel. So instead of saying tick, tick, you say tick, talk, and the vowel in there has changed from it to ah. And right. right. And when you do this and when we pick other ones, I mean, you get like clop, clip, clop, not clop, clip, or ding, dong, not dong, ding, or whatever you want to say, ping, pong, not pong, ping. I'm thinking of this going, okay, I know that it sounds weird if we do it the other way, but it turns out there's actually a pattern to this. There is a, a, a solid grammatical rule, again, that we don't even understand, but there is a rule for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you always start, I mean, there's different ways of thinking about why this happens, but in, in words with, that have like if and ah, like ping pong, ding dong, clip clop, you always get the if first and the ah second. Um, and then if you have patterns where you have three, a sequence of three words, say like tic-tac-talk, you would always get it, ah, ah. You would never get ah, it, ah, or ah, ah, it, or anything else like so that. It's, so it's always I, A, O. That's right. Always. That's right. Yeah. Which is, and again, I'm guessing right now, Dr. Bird, that there are probably of the people listening, there might be two people who have ever contemplated this before and didn't even realize that we were doing this. And those people are brilliant, by the way, if you're listening and you have thought of this, (laughs) well done, you're way ahead of the rest of us. But the funny part about this is, as I said in the introduction, if you say it wrong, even without realizing why it's wrong, it's like you've played a scale on a piano and hit the wrong last note and you kind of clench because you go, that sounds 
so messed up. If you say, mm-hmm. you know, instead of zigzag, if you say zagzig, everyone knows that's not how you say it. And yet, it, and it makes you, why does it make us uncomfortable though? Because for many people, if you say them, mash, mish, instead of mishmash, you go, I know that's wrong. It makes us feel uncomfortable. Why does it do that to us? Well, I think because our, our grammar, you know, whether or not we're aware that we have grammar in our language, it's, it's very deeply embedded, right? And so we have these rules or these processes that we know have to hold of the words in our language. Um, and when something goes against that, it really, it really strikes us as odd or unnatural or, or just plain wrong, or right? So in this particular case, I think there's, there, are, there are probably good um, kind of physically-based reasons why we have this particular sequence, E-A-O, or IAO, um, and so there's some good kind of grounding for that that particular for that particular rule in the way we articulate speech, um, and that grounding is is strong and it's a strong foundation for the grammar that we have, and so we react when that's not followed, right? But it's should like trying to. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, but shouldn't, when we have these strong rules, and you're absolutely right, because we all know, like there's nobody listening right now who would say, oh yeah, it's mash-mish instead of mishmash. Shouldn't we have to have been taught this? Because it seems like it's just by osmosis that we've picked it up. Um, no, and that's what's so interesting about language acquisition. It, it is by osmosis, right? We, we don't, when kids learn how to speak the, the language that's around them, nobody sits down with them and explains to them that you have to put, you know, that in English I have to put the subject in front of the verb and the verb in front of the object, or that if I've got, if I'm saying, um, you know, no one, no one will sit down with a child who's just learning to speak and say, well, you have to say big ball. You never say ball big, for example, right? Kids are amazing at picking up regular patterns within their language and just internalizing them. So it's not, it's never the case unless you're learning a language maybe as a grown-up that you explicitly learn grammar, right? You just, you just pick it up because we're really good at doing kind of statistical analyses of the, of the speech that we hear, right? Which and is what it really that. is, right? It is a statistic. It's, a ma- it's almost a mathematical formula you're doing in your head of language. Exactly. Yeah, we're really good at, at, at pulling out patterns and we're really good not just at figuring out what's right and what's wrong, but what's slightly better and what's slightly worse. Um, and that's based on the input that we hear and how we're able to process it. You, you mentioned ball big, which is funny because I mean, we, we know, again, we understand that the adjective goes in front of the word, but I didn't realize this. This is another one that I just realized. And it makes all, when it, it's very familiar when you break it down, there is a sequence to the adjectives that we can use or that we generally use. And I, I was reading this, that it always goes in the order of opinion, size, age, shape, color, origin, material, purpose, and then the noun. So if we're doing a test with this, if you were going to describe, I don't know, a, a man, and he was a an Asian man who was large and old, you would never say the Asian large old man. You would say the large old Asian man. That's just the way for somehow we've made it so that those words fit in that order. I don't, I don't quite understand why, but it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, languages are full of somewhat arbitrary decisions about what goes where and how it all works, right? And that's why, it's, that's why languages differ from one another, because those decisions are arbitrary. No one really knows why. Well, in some cases, no one really knows why. In other cases, there, there, are, there are reasons. But 
um, for that kind of thing, those decisions, I think, um, are often somewhat arbitrary, which is why languages differ, right, in how they work like that. So do you believe, and you said you're not really sure why, but do you believe that somewhere along the way as the language was developing, somebody or some people or somehow it was made that way? Or is that just the way that it was, that people did it at one time and it became very familiar, so that got passed on and it became the norm? Um, I, I suspect it it just, it sort of became the norm as people, you know, I mean, people, speech happens in within communities, right? And and so sound, you know, it's within a community, sound speech patterns will be adopted and they will spread um, in fairly kind of predictable ways. And so I suspect that's what happened is that people just, you know, started speaking in some way and that became normalized and that became the way it is. I mean, there are there are some patterns, specifically things like TikTok, which I think have, um, there is a reason for those types of patterns that's based on the way we pronounce speech and on the way we perceive speech. Um, but for other things, uh, there is no, you know, there's no easy explanation. And in those cases, it's likely just, it's it's a little bit like, um, you know, like Darwinism, you, something, something ends up getting selected and spreading. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so one last thing before I let you go, because I know you've got to run, but one last thing. So when we're following these two patterns, because you've got the IAO rule that whenever you're going to change that with the reduplication, you have to do it. And you've got this other one that I'll go over again in a moment with the order of the adjectives. Uh, little Red Riding Hood follows it because little size is one of the earlier ones in the order of adjectives and red is color it follows and then riding hood but big bad wolf wouldn't because bad is the opinion which is the first one and then big is size that's later which i've since learned but the iao rule trumps all the other grammar rules that's right it's so you get yeah you get really interesting um, interactions between different types of rules and and you're right there is trumping of some over others it truly explains why when people say that English is the most difficult or one of the most difficult languages to learn, it's stuff like this that backs that up, right? <laughs> because if yeah, I was new like, to this language, you would be pulling out your hair trying to figure out why do you say that? Yeah, exactly. And yet we we just do it, right? And it's totally obvious to us that one is, one is wrong and the other is right. Um, but when you think about people having to learn these patterns, um, you're right, because they're somewhat arbitrary and they're specific to specific, specific languages, that makes them difficult to learn, right? I, I don't know if you're a linguist. Uh, I mean, you're certainly a grammarian, but does this happen in other languages? Do we know that these same patterns or similar type patterns exist in other languages? Um, yeah, you get, so a lot of patterns are kind of, um, tend to happen across languages of the world. A lot of patterns don't, and they're specific to specific languages. And um, so you get, you know, you get really interesting interactions between kind of universal tendencies and what individual languages tend to do. Keeps it exciting, right? When it, you're trying to learn a language. Well, it keeps it exciting. <laughs> and when you're in school and you're trying to do grammar, it keeps you uh, on your toes. I will tell you that much. Uh, Dr. Sonia Bird, Associate Professor of Linguistics at the University of Victoria. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.